As time goes on, Senator Barry Goldwater, the Republican candidate for president in 1964, is ever more interesting. Once the paragon of conservatism, it's clear he'd be out of step with the policies of the current administration. A while back, we spoke to John Dean about his excellent book, Worse Than Watergate, and we're delighted to have him back to discuss his newest book, co-edited with childhood friend Barry Goldwater Jr. It's titled Pure Goldwater and is a revealing collection of the late Arizona Senator's thoughts as revealed through his private writings. We're delighted to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, John Dean. Thank you. Are you finding that people are surprised to discover that Barry Goldwater was pro-choice, not opposed to gays in the military, and an advocate of cutting Pentagon waste? Well, not really, because some did know that towards the end of his life. So what, what was surprising is people thought he'd changed his position late in his life, when in fact he'd really been consistent in his entire political career. If one looks, he's, he is actually pro-choice pre-Roe v. Wade. Uh, and most of all those positions were taken long before they became such focus issues. Well, uh, Pure Goldwater is a, is a very amusing book. Goldwater could be a very funny man. I, I loved cracks that he made, like referring to Friendship Airport near Baltimore as the only airport in the world for which there's no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> and the transcript you printed and of you it, have to agree with that. <laughs> well, yeah, possibly so. <laughs> uh, you printed a transcript of testimony for a lawsuit where he defended himself against some allegations that he had doubts about his masculinity because he sold lingerie in the, in the department store. Quite amusing stuff. Well, you're right. I, that was actually one of the real treasures we found when we started on this book. Most of it is on a, uh, it, the, the core of the book is a journal that nobody knew his, he kept. Uh, indeed, we did a, uh, a program here while we've been out on tour with Lee Edwards, who's one of his former staffers, who le- actually wrote one of the two better biographies of Goldwater. He said, you know, I, I remember hearing the rumor that there was a journal he kept, but nobody could find it. How'd you guys find it? And I said, well, it just happened by happenstance. When I was going to at one point do a book with the senator, uh, he said, I've got some papers I think you ought to look at. Well, unfortunately, the senator's health didn't hold up. It's a book that actually became Conservatives Without Conscience, and that was a play on his uh, well-known classic, The Conscience of a Conservative. Anyway, when, when I actually got around to doing the book, uh, I, I discovered the threads of this journal and then got the archivist to start digging for it because while they were not put in the general files, they were dropped in through select files. Uh, he originally started doing this, uh, uh, his own typing. Then he did it as dictation, and he put it in, in, in for his eyes only. Uh, so it was spread out and scattered around. Some of it was done by the Washington office. Some of it was done by the Phoenix office. Some of it was done by other private secretaries over the years. So it never got in one place. So that was the that was the find. Getting this this material that was so unlike anything else uh, that we really thought this told a tale. It, it it's, it's the man we knew and we thought should be introduced to another generation uh, that comes through in these pages. So it's not really an autobiographical or biographical work. It's, it was a private journal that, thro- that is the thread of the, uh, of the work. Well, you certainly did uncover some really revealing things, particularly when the senator seemed to be reacting emotionally to something. And I, I thought his description of visiting a lonely Richard Nixon out at San Clemente after he, after he resigned was really quite haunting. 
the largest part of the journal that was preserved in his papers deals with Nixon and Watergate. Needless to say to me, this some of this was quite striking. So there's a lot of historical tidbits in there, not only his take on Nixon at different times, how he actually learns about Watergate from Ben Bradley when it's late in the game after he's been out defending him. Uh, and then he starts to pull back and, and, and recommend to Nixon that he get his act together. Then he, at one point he's even typing letters to him in the dead of the night on his portable typewriter that he doesn't want anybody else telling Nixon, hey, it's about time you start acting like a president and, and not being this cold fish that everybody is experiencing. Then, of course, the capper to me, because not even his family knew this, are one of them the fact that he and Nixon had agreed that he would have an ambassadorship if he didn't run for Congress or for the Senate again in 74. Yeah. Uh, so he indeed, here's this great plum that he has yeah. decided he's going to give up himself uh, in his decision to stop defending Nixon. And the other one, of course, is that after Ford becomes president, one of the first people he asked to be vice president is Barry Goldwater. His family had no idea of any of this. Yeah, that's that's quite a historical nugget to know that, uh, of course, People forget that it was Goldwater's longtime rival, Nelson Rockefeller, that Jerry Ford wind up going with, but first he was leaning to Goldwater, of all things. And there's a real philosophical span there. Right. I noticed that uh, the senator seemed to, he really sort of obsessed a bit over Rockefeller. I laughed at the revelation in the book that he thought that Rockefeller was giving money to George Romney's run at the nomination. Did, did, you, did you and Barry Jr. find evidence that's true? <laughs> you know, we never flushed that fully out. Uh, what I didn't, uh, we talked about some of the things to put in, some of the things not to put in. There was some very interesting and heated uh, correspondence between uh, George Romney and Barry Goldwater, where they're each pretty much sharing their estimation of the other. And I thought about that at the time, but it went off on what would today be, be pretty esoteric policy issues yeah. that it just would it would take long long explanations uh, to get the reader up to appreciate the the nuance and the uh, but hopefully this whole project will encourage people to uh, historians to take another look at some of this material that's in that now been surfaced in the Arizona Historical Foundation well I, I hope there'll be a part two because there were a lot of things sort of left hanging about uh uh, didn't go into Reagan a lot or, or George Bush Sr., but I, I imagine there's some probably some other material out there still. Well, there is, you know, not a lot of journal entries. There's some, uh, as we said in the uh, intro or in the preface, there's some, you know, some truly frustratingly incomplete parts where he just doesn't address it or it, somehow the papers have gotten lost. Uh, the 64 campaign, uh, there's nothing. He, obviously, he's reflecting back on it in some mail and before it. And then, of course, in the what you referred to, the lawsuit following the uh, the '64 race, but he doesn't he didn't have time during the '64 campaign to uh, make these kind of journal entries. Yeah, it, it clearly in later life he said over and over again, as as you reveal in the book, that he thought he really had no chance to win in '64 against Lyndon Johnson. But I'm wondering if you have a sense of whether he really did think that back in '64. Oh, he did. Barry Jr. was quite aware of it. He told his family, he said, you know, we don't have a Chinaman's chance. Uh, I know it because Barry came to me. I was in law school at the time. Barry Jr., my former roommate, came to me and he said, listen, I'm, Mike and I are out, uh, you know, beating the bush for, for Dad, and we really need somebody that, that knows what the hell they're doing to control our schedule. Would you become our scheduler? Because it's, it's full-time work. I said, Barry, I just, I know 
you know, and you're telling me your dad's not going to win. I, my, I, I just can't drop out of law school and 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 do that. I'm doing good. I'm. I just I was afraid I'd never get the momentum back again right. if I had dropped out. Right. And so I was aware of it too. The, the family knew that uh, it was going to be highly problematic. But what happened is the senator he had looked forward to running against Kennedy with a rather unique idea how the two would run together in sort of a ongoing Lincoln-Douglas debate where they'd fly around the country in an airplane. And just think how that might have changed American politics had that happened, where they wouldn't go into a TV studio to get all made up and have a moderator for a debate, but just fly around the country and address different issues in that part of the country. And they'd hoped, because Goldwater had told Kennedy he was going to run against him. He said, you know, you're gutless on some of these issues, and I'm just have had it. And yet they were the best of friends, and that's the sort of situations you could have in those days. You know, many of the many of the very sharp and critical debates in the Senate back in those days were against men who could be fierce in their in their exchanges on the Senate floor and go into the cloakroom and be the best of friends <laughs> and, they, and do it with civility. Uh, that's all changed, of course. But anyway, the uh, the campaign against Lyndon Johnson, he knew that after Kennedy was shot, that he didn't think the American people would ever could really adjust to three presidents that quickly, and that nobody had a chance against Johnson, he, that he, he had locked that seat in by inheritance, and he wasn't going to be beatable. And Goldwater, one of the, the reasons we put some of that material in there is because he never, never went negative uh, in any of his campaigns. And how many politicians today, uh, and he's not that long off the scene, can you say did that? Yeah. He must have known, having served in the Senate with Johnson, that he was going to be one formidable candidate to run against. Well, he knew he would be one dirty campaign to <laughs> run against. <laughs> and it would, anyone, anyone would have been formidable who got Kennedy's seat, but uh, Lyndon Johnson added a, a special note to it. In fact, you know, the, the Goldwater people had lots of dirt on the, on, the, on the Johnson campaign or his operation and his activities. Sure. They knew they, they were, that he was lying about Vietnam. Uh, you know, the famous line was uh, uh, by everybody during the uh, 64 campaign, if you vote for Barry Goldwater, the, the war in Vietnam will go on and on. Uh, and a lot of people who did vote for Barry Goldwater found that the war did go on and on, notwithstanding that overwhelming defeat. And because that's yes. why Johnson was quietly escalating at the time. They also had things that were pretty ugly, like uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, chief of staff getting arrested in the uh, in the men's room in a wide stance, uh, as they say. <laughs> yeah, uh, Walter the, Jenkins, at the yeah. YMCA, and, and, and then Goldwater refused to let his campaign use that material. Right. Very commendable. But, you know, one thing I was just absolutely stunned by, you sort of mentioned it just in passing in the book that on his last night in the White House, LBJ has Goldwater come over for a drink. Isn't that interesting? He, and, and he said they have a couple drinks, and Goldwater listens to the, the president on his way out pour his soul out to him. Because they'd, they'd known each other. That, and that's, again, evidence of the different era. What I, one of the reasons we thought this book was important is because here is a man in, in Barry Goldwater who brings somewhat of 19th century attitudes about how a, uh, a senator or a high elected official 
behaves in office. He brings it into the 20th century, and we happen to think that those things are applicable to the 21st century. And but yet nobody has this kind of information. So when Goldwater's putting it, you know, in his private journal the way he is, people can get this kind of insider view. And it's also curious to note that in, in, in these journals, uh, uh, Senator Goldwater was really pondering what was going on with Vice President Spiro Agnew and suspected that Nixon was engineering Agnew's departure. I know. Very aware by the end that Agnew has lied to him because, for example, at one point uh, he's agreeing with Agnew that he should go the impeachment route, that this is what the Constitution really has contemplated, and then the Justice Department gins up a memorandum saying, no, he can be removed criminally or uh, asked to resign by the president, but he doesn't have to. And, and so Agnew is saying, well, they won't even let me go the impeachment route. Well, Agnew did take his case to Speaker Albert and tried to get the uh, House to start an impeachment proceeding to block the, the uh, uh, criminal proceeding. But the House wouldn't touch it. The Democratic leadership said, we don't want to get in the middle of this. If the Justice Department wants to prosecute you, then we'll look at it. But we're not going to look at it first. And we're certainly not going to tie up a criminal proceeding. So Agnew, uh, Agnew had, you know, was, was misleading Goldwater, which he realizes in the end. But what, what uh, Nixon didn't realize, and that became evident as time went on, even I remember those days very well, is that... Agnew was more popular with the with the rank and file of the Republican Party than Nixon, uh, who's got his Watergate problems. And so, what Goldwater's uh, speculation that Nixon is trying to ease him out is not off the mark at all, because indeed Nixon did want to get Connolly in to be the vice president, and so he'd be, he'd succeed as president. Yeah. Well, I mean, the book the book is so full of these these fascinating little little tidbits um, that you had to get from a personal journal. Uh, at one point, Goldwater was recollecting that he didn't want to be thought of as a has has been, and really had to be coaxed to appear at I guess it was the seventy two GOP convention. But then Nixon winds up stepping on his speech by getting coverage from himself, and Goldwater thought that really was not an accident. Well, I got to tell you, I insisted with Barry Jr. We put that in because I knew a lot of the guys who were dumping on my friend, the senator, in those logistics, and I wanted them to know that the senator understood exactly what he would, they, what they were doing to him as time went on. And many of those people are still alive. So, <laughs> I guess also uh, at one point Ronald Reagan complains to him that on inauguration night Nixon snubs him as well. Yeah, isn't that an interesting exchange? Now, there's a, there's a fair amount of correspondence. Goldwater and Reagan are have a very interesting relationship. I know a little bit much more about it from talking to the senator over the years. That when Reagan, when he first met Ronald Reagan, uh, he was a Democrat, and he was coming to Phoenix with Nancy to meet, to meet with Nancy's parents, who who wintered in Phoenix, and he's a Democrat. And uh, his, uh, his his in-laws are not, and they like the senator and the department store and what have you, and they're telling him, work on Ron to get him to see the light. <laughs> so, so they have a relationship to, from the very formative days of, of Reagan's uh, glimpses into conservatism, that, which really come from Barry Goldwater. And this is why he appears in the uh, 2000, excuse me, the, uh, the uh, uh, 1964 race, uh, when Reagan gives his maiden speech, if you will, a political speech that changes his career, and it's too late for, uh, you know, Goldwater knows he's in trouble, but he knows he's, this is part of his thought of how do we share the message, and how do we get this message out, because uh, he knows Reagan's a, you know, a very good communicator, and uh, encouraged that whole activity. 
We need, I think, remind people, too, that, uh, that that it was Barry Goldwater, foremost among others in Congress, who at the end told Richard Nixon he doesn't have any support. That is true. He was the, he was the nose counter in the Senate, and his colleagues wanted him to go down and deliver that message. And he, being very conscious of the process and the way the Constitution worked, uh, wanted really to wait until he was invited down, which those journal pieces he's entering in those final days I found fascinating because uh, they're covered nowhere else. He wasn't talking to anybody else in the media about them, but just putting down his private thoughts as, uh, as to what was happening and what actually did happen in the meeting when he got, went in and how Nixon was acting like a guy who'd hit a hole in one, which kind of caught him by surprise And because it, it, what we all know now is Nixon really had already made the decision, and the difficulty was with his family uh, that he eased it to them. And this was all sort of being choreographed at the end, but and to do it in a, in a way that would uh, have really a good transition of the of the powers of the presidency. So you know, Goldwater is uh, a key to it, but he uh, it's because his colleagues uh, respect him so much, and he's the one that decides that you, Scott, should join them, and that the House leader, Scott being the Senate leader at that point, uh, that he shouldn't do this mission alone, but rather he should go down with the leadership. Well, the, the issue of Goldwater and others speaking to, to Nixon before the end is, is pretty well known, but you really have to read your book to pick up uh, a little tidbit like the fact that shortly before that happened, Goldwater calls Al Haig at the Oval Office and feels sure that Nixon's probably on the other line, and he speaks very frankly, believing that Nixon's, in fact, eavesdropping, something I'm sure you can, uh, <laughs> it's quite ironic for you to contemplate. And I don't think there's any doubt that Goldwater's correct on that. <laughs> Nixon would have trouble taking that information as directly, but to have Haig make the heavy call and get the word and be overlisting it, uh, that would be a way he would prefer. Uh, the, the whole Nixon-Goldwater relationship is so complex, we can't cover it in sound bites. But we, it, that's why it's so nice to see it laid out in these journals, which, you know, he goes beyond the time Nixon leaves office before he finally decides he's just had enough. You know, suspicion that starts as, about Nixon and his inability to tell the truth start as early as 1953 when Goldwater is first elected to the Senate and Nixon's vice president, and they run until when? Uh, the spring of 1973. So that's 20 years of, of him supporting Nixon with these doubts where he's only talking about them in his journal, but yet he's being the loyal soldier for the president and and for the party and for the best of the party, but he finally has to break rank and he just can't take it anymore. We should also note, too, that at, at near the end, uh, Goldwater's support for Nixon was, at least in part, based on the fact that he asked you if the White House knew in advance about the burglary. You told him no, a fact which, which history supports. And, uh, and, and really, of course, it was the cover-up later that led to the downfall of Nixon, not, not the burglary. Actually, there's more that didn't, that because he didn't mention it, I didn't mention it. It's come up in another book I did called Blind Ambition, one of the first I did. How And Barry Jr. actually happens to be mentioning it a lot while we're out talking about this, where because of my effort and my sort of naive thought that by coming forward and telling the truth, I could force the president to do it, I sat down with the senator. He's the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee at this point, and I'm worried that 
anything. I, you know, I'm, I'm telling the senator that I'm going to blow the president out of his out of his seat in the Oval Office when I testify before the Senate, and I don't want to do anything that's going to cause any national security problems. And it's painful law to, to to be disloyal and to have to blow the whistle, but we, you know, for, it's got to stop. Uh, it, 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 you know, my sense of right and wrong tells me that this is just really cannot be the way the presidency operates. And uh, we're over at Barry Jr.'s house, and Senator says to his son, son, bring me a, about mid-morning on a Sunday morning, he says, bring me a shot of old crow. <laughs> and he takes that down, and he looks at me, he says, John, you go out and you testify, you tell the truth, and you blow that son of a bitch out of the water. <laughs> well, the, the book is Pure Goldwater, co-edited by John Dean and Barry Goldwater Jr. We appreciate it very much. You're speaking with us. I do want to add one bonus question because uh, since we spoke last time, uh, it was revealed that Mark Felt was the mysterious deep throat in Watergate. I'm just curious about your reaction to that. Very disappointed. Very disappointed. There's no question in my mind what Felt was doing. Uh, there are two problems. First, Felt didn't have all the information. I've talked to Woodward about this. Uh, he didn't have all the information, could not have had all the information that uh, Deep Throat purportedly had. Uh, Felt is out of the FBI by the spring of 73. Woodward is quoting Deep Throat in November for information about the erasures on the tapes. There's just no way, just absolutely no way humanly possible, Felt, who's out of the FBI, and there's nobody in the FBI even connected with a case that knew about this. So there's problems in the information. And secondly, what a disappointment. Felt's, Felt's just out there to trying to undercut the head of the FBI, uh, Pat Gray, uh, to blow him out of his seat, if you will. He's a very disappointing deep throat, uh, and obviously because he's he's got some dementia problems, he can't even remember any of it now. Uh, so while we know who it is, we certainly can't get any explanations of what he did or did not do, and I still remain somewhat curious to see Woodward's notes uh, that are theoretically were contemporaneous about some of the things. The other thing is, it, indeed, this is uh, an accurate portrayal in the book of what he was told by, what Woodward was told by Deep Throat, and Bob's a friend. Uh, about, about 50% of it is dead wrong. Dead wrong. Huh. When Felt's book came out, I very seldom have ever written a negative book review. And the New York Times asked me to re review the book. I read it, and I said, listen, this is just terrible, this stuff. This is just junk. This is the book he put out uh, initially when he was still denying that he was deep throat. It was ghostwritten then. It's been ghostwritten uh -huh. written now after the fact. And I panned the book terribly, and I upset the authors and the family, but it was just true. And to, and to put it out as being anything other than uh, just some of a calculated fraud, uh, if you will. I just couldn't tolerate it. So it's the first. It's the only negative book review I've ever written. Uh, the uh, the lawyer there in in San Francisco that uh, was behind it uh, was very offended by that and wrote a couple letters to the editor, to which I responded. But I certainly am on safe ground. In summary, you believe Deep Throat is still in a composite? From... Uh, it, it has to be now. Uh, yeah. has to, I didn't believe. You know, Bob always told me it was one person. Uh, and I don't doubt him that it was one person, but I think his notes might have gotten commingled. Because <laughs> it's just not possible that Felt had all this information. Our guest has been John Dean, former Nixon White House counsel, star Watergate uh, witness, bi-weekly columnist for FineLaw.com, and best-selling author. His current book is Pure Goldwater, a collection of the private words of Barry Goldwater, co-edited with Barry Goldwater, Jr., 
Thank you for speaking with us, sir. And, and as, as I said last time, I hope you can come back so we'll talk about Warren Harding one of these days. I'd love that. He, he needs a, a lot more attention. <laughs> <laughs> he does. So I hope when maybe this current book tour is over sometime this summer, we can come back to you on that. I think it'd be fun. That'd be fun, yes. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. <laughs> 